Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's May 19th and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew House Barbie and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? Hey, Matt. Well, what a wild ride. It has continued. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I feel like there is just no shortage of just incredible stories for us to cover at the moment. It's it's just it's hit after hit at this point, right? It really is. I want to get off of Mr. Doquan's wild ride is basically all that's going through my head. <laughs> I, I think that most people feel the same way, actually, uh, about that whole thing. So as a just a, a quick overview of what we're going to be covering, of course, we would be remiss not to give you an update on the Terra situation, what's happening in that world. So we got a bit of a recap and where they're at with the, the next steps there. We are talking little bit here uh, about um, Bitcoin mining and how that's holding up in the ban uh, that's been in place in China, talking a little bit around more de-pegging, if, if uh, that's just going to be the consistent theme, and chatting a little bit about what's happening over at Lido, and then Robinhood's push into the Web3 space. But we will jump into our first story of the day right after this. If you're struggling to get your head around the complexity of decentralized finance, I've something just for you. Decrypting DeFi is an online course where I walk you through all of the important concepts within DeFi and share step-by-step -step tutorials on how to start generating income from your crypto assets. Whether you're interested in this from an investment point of view or just want to better understand how things like yield farming, liquidity mining, and staking works, the course will have something for you. Head over to mhb.xyz forward slash DeFi to learn more. The first story of the day, as you can probably imagine, is related to Terra. If you do not know what's happening in the Terra ecosystem, i.e. with Luna and UST, I would encourage you to crawl out from the rock that you are currently living under <laughs> and uh, listen to last week's episode that we gave a bit of a recap there. But, so the TLDR really is Luna has crashed. UST has had a major DPEG and has completely crashed. I, I'm actually not even sure what the, the current market value of UST is. Uh, Right, right now, but I guess it's probably still in the the low sense. Um, all but worthless is what we would probably say about that. Um, but there's been a new governance proposal issued by Do Kwon, the fearless leader behind Terra. Um, he has not gone fully into hiding just yet. However, I did. I I don't know if you heard some of this, Austin, with like some of the crazy stuff where uh, allegedly. Uh, someone had found his like home address in Korea, yeah. went to his house and I, I mean, did see that. That's pretty bizarre yeah. that he was getting doxxed. I guess that things like that do happen in crisis scenarios like this, but um, I had seen rumors circulating that he was like perhaps making plans to exit the country. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe earth, I think yeah. would be a, a better escape plan for him. He's going to have to get in Elon's good books or Bezos. And I think they're just going to have to like trebuchet launch him to the moon. I think that's the only <laughs> way, I, ironically, probably the only way that any part of Terra is now going to the moon. Uh, so uh, <laughs> apologies for the terrible pun there. Uh, but <clears throat> so let me, let's talk about this governance proposal. So here's 
there's been a lot of discussion about where does the Terra ecosystem go from here? And, you know, it's the, the argument is there's, there's not a whole lot of places they can go. Uh, one of the first big outstanding questions that's been coming up was, okay, of the $3.1 billion worth of Bitcoin that the Luna Foundation Guard had um, owned in the reserve fund, uh, which they had around May 7th, uh, $3.1 billion in, in assets. Uh, well, how much of that actually got deployed and spent to protect and try to recover the peg of UST? This has been something that there wasn't a whole lot of transparency around. And we found out this week that today, that $3.1 billion is now worth a whopping $87 million. That is not a lot. So they basically deployed pretty much all of their BTC holdings to, in a failed attempt to restore the peg and now have, in relative speaking terms, pretty much nothing left. Um, and, and this is important because one of the biggest things that uh, the Lunar and UST holders had been asking for was, well, maybe what we do here is shut this whole thing down and uh, allocate the remaining Bitcoin treasury funds to Luna or UST holders. And there was a lot of like discussion around how should that be deployed. I think, uh, Austin, you were, we were talking earlier about uh, a tweet from Vitalik about how that could potentially be distributed, weren't we? Right, yeah. So he was essentially endorsing what um, Persian Capital which is a, an account on Twitter, um, said, uh, you know, could be a potential path to basically making the overwhelming majority of Terra holders whole, which is that if Terra were to just focus on the, quote, poorest 99.6% of wallets, then uh, they could actually make that group 100% whole. But if they were to focus on the, re the remaining 0.4% of whale wallets, um, they would only be making everyone about 30% whole. Um, so kind of the idea here being like, maybe what's best to do is to focus on the, uh, the small UST holders who, you know, just heard something dumb, like get 20% interest rates on the US dollar from an influencer. Um, and then, you know, pass personal responsibility on to the wealthy who, you know, obviously had to know what they were doing with, with the level of holdings that they had. Now, obviously, this isn't a perfect solution because you could have whales with just like conglomerates and, and groups of small wallets. But the uh, I think that the overarching idea is like this doesn't have to be completely disastrous for a huge amount of people, the majority of which you know, are um, perhaps uh, disproportionately affected by this, even though it may be in the grand scheme of things, a small, smaller loss that they would be taking than that 0.4% of wallets that are whale-sized wallets. So I thought that that was an interesting potential approach. Agreed. And, you know, a lot of the larger wallets are ultimately either institutions, uh, institutional investors, major whales, which probably make up like a smaller percentage. A lot of it, there's a huge amount of institutional investment. And I even saw uh, CZ from Binance, who's been very vocal um, it, through the, the past couple of weeks in criticism of some of the actions during the, the depegging event, and also some of the proposals that have been coming out from Do Kwan and team. Um, Binance were a big early investor and they, they said, hey, we will forego 
being made whole on this uh, in favor of making uh, smaller wallets whole. However, all of this to one side, I don't even know if this is even viable anymore because yeah. they, I mean, what are you going to do with 80, $87 million? We just wiped out nearly $45, $50 billion worth of capital. <laughs> $87 million? What What's going to happen here? This isn't, that. There's, there's not much that can be done. So this is a real blow. Um, and then, you know, instead of saying, okay, well, how, how can we just focus on in some way, shape or form supporting those that are lost? Do Kwan has issued a new proposal that is looking like it's on the path to passing, which is also incredibly surprising. Here's the TLDR on uh, where this is at. I think as we speak, there's probably about seven days left for this governance proposal to pass. Um, and the the long and short of this is they're proposing to fork the Terra blockchain into a new chain that does not include the algorithmic stablecoin UST. They would then take the old chain and call that Terra Classic with the token Luna Classic, somewhat of a nod back to the uh, the the DAO hack uh, from from many years ago that formed Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, um, and then the new chain to be called Terra with the token Luna. And what they would plan to do here is Luna would be airdropped across all Luna Classic stakers. Uh, Luna Classic holders, any UST holders, and any of the app developers of Terra Classic. This is actually right now, and there's a few more things to this that I'll I'll, I'll cover, but 80% are in favor of this. There's still, I think there's about 150, 160 million votes have been cast um, from uh, governance voters. And there needs to be roughly another 150 million in votes needed for uh, to reach quorum. Um, it's likely to pass. But, you know, here's another thing that's really interesting in all of this. So let's just park the fact that basically Do Kwan is trying to say, let's just bury this whole mess. We'll forget about it and we'll just print some more magic internet money and hopefully that'll make everyone whole. Um What's, what I find interesting in all of this is that they're planning to take the snapshot for the airdrop of this new Luna token on May 27th. That is in the future. So instead of saying, oh, let's take a snapshot of everyone just before the uh, events that have unfolded. No, no, no. Let's let this pass and probably just let a bunch of whales speculate on this just purely to farm this airdrop and then most likely dump the hell out of it and dump on all of the retail investors twice. This is a great way to get completely fucked twice in my opinion. <laughs> uh, like, and you know, it, it makes me really sad because um, for the way this proposal has kind of been framed is uh, it's either this or nothing. So, you know, like Luna holders are kind of going, well, I guess I don't really have any other option. Um, but what they, what the, uh, the, they have said is the TFL's wallet will, it'll be removed from the airdrop. So Terra, um, they, they wouldn't actually own the, uh, a large chunk of the airdrop and their whole push is to make it a fully 
community-owned chain, and they would allocate a large portion of the token distribution for providing an emergency one-ray for the existing Terra uh, decentralized app developers, and in an attempt to align the interests of devs in the long-term success of the ecosystem. Um, So (laughs) along with this, there is still going to be staking rewards and a much lower reward uh, in the form of a 7% yield per annum, which is still quite high. I'm not quite sure how that will all work out, but man, you know, a lot of this just hinges on the fact that people are going to actually trust that the Luna token, this new one, is going to be worth something. I imagine somewhat of a pump in the the current Luna token if this passes just because people are going to farm it in the hopes they're going to make some cash back, which I just don't think is going to happen. And yeah, it's, it's pretty clear that the community are not happy with this. And uh, they, they, there's a lot of governance proposals floating around. And one of the big ones being, I actually saw just as we we're about to start recording right now, trending on Twitter actually was burn hashtag burn Luna. That's the, <laughs> that's what people are looking to do because this whole thing is inflated to an almost infinite supply at this stage. And uh, they, they want to see if there's going to be one kind of way of recovering. This is just to take an enormous chunk of that supply and burn it and just contract the supply. I'm still not completely convinced that's actually going to work. My opinion here is I don't think there is a way out of this. Um, uh, and I think it also needs to start with Do Kwon stepping down as well as the the leader. But it's just, um, you know, th- this just feels like just another way for large holders to try and recoup funds and dump on retail again, which doesn't feel great to me. Yeah, agreed. Um, and on top of that, related to this, as we predicted last week, Um, We've got a legal roundup, and this time it's all about this one story as opposed to the entire industry. Um, So there is a group of Korean investors that are filing both a civil and criminal lawsuit against Do Kwon. So this is something that we saw coming, um, but it's uh, it's already uh, being placed in motion. And this actually, what's really interesting to me is that in addition, in addition to this civil and criminal um, lawsuit that Do Kwon is facing in South Korea, um, this also includes an order to seize his property and assets that are based in Korea. So it's uh, it's a big one. And another thing that I, I thought was especially interesting about this is that the the group of Korean investors that's filing these suits, they're represented by this law firm called LKB and Partners. And it turns out that several employees at that firm were individually and personally impacted by the UST and Luna collapse. So um, mm. yeah, this is- Do you think that's uh, like a conflict of interest? In, well, in I would, I, I mean, I would have to think so. Like, I, I don't know if that would sort of like preclude them from being able to work on the case or or what, but I guess that um, maybe it kind of speaks to just the broad impact of this event to the point where like the people wanting to sue you end up finding a law firm that happens to also have people that would want to sue you working for. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, true. I mean, it's hard. uh, Many people have drawn parallels to this being the the 
the Lehman Brothers situation of uh, of crypto, and you'd you'd be hard pressed not to find someone who had uh, been impacted during the two thousand and eight uh, financial crisis, and uh, that, that that was going to form a a legal battle against them. So it's probably a similar case here. Anyone that has been involved in crypto, it, let alone being affected directly, we've pretty much all been impacted indirectly. I mean, even pretty much anything that's got a peg right now is getting tested as a result as a knock-on effect of, of this. So yeah, huge ripple effects. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's so many stories that we could cover related to that. Um, but uh, another interesting one related to civil and criminal suits, um, there's actually also a separate Korean group, which is called Victims of Luna and UST Coins, and they're filing a lawsuit against Do Kwon and Daniel Shin, who is the Tor- Terraform Labs co-founder. And this one's for fraud and for conducting illegal fundraising business. Um, this group is fairly large and growing. It currently has 1,100 members, and of course, they're based in Korea alone. Uh, all of this on top of Terra's in-house legal team having resigned a couple days ago. So, of course, they're facing some additional um, legal exposure there. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is all just related to UST and Luna and Terra specifically, right? But as you mentioned, Matt, like um, Janet Yellen's deer in the headlights speech to Congress aside... <laughs> This is going to have huge um, ripples throughout the in- entire industry, not just focused um, on what's happening, you know, with this particular stablecoin, but with other stablecoins as well. And uh, I know that you you were telling me about this interesting story coming out of this uh, YC uh, startup called Stable Gains. Uh, th- this is just another another example of just where. The, the hubris of the bull market and the hubris of just this whole ecosystem that spun around uh, Terra. And to be honest, a lot of like the, the, the yield-based models that have been popping up time and time again around stablecoins, how, how this stuff happens. So there's a company called Stable Games, and um, they were offering to individual and uh, retail investors, uh, sorry, retail and like institutional investors as well, but mainly retail, they were offering um, the ability to get a 15% yield on US dollars and uh, and slash or uh, USDC crypto. So you would send them USD or USDC and they would accrue a 15% per annum yield on those stable coins for you, deliver out like a dividend or something like that, right? And um, it turns out what they had been doing had been that without informing investors, in fact, telling them almost the complete opposite of this, they'd thrown all of the funds, which I think were around about $42 million, into the anchor protocol to earn that juicy 19 to 20% yield. Uh, so it converted everything into UST just to skim off the additional 4 to 5% yield on top of that that they weren't going to pass on to their investors, again, without telling them this. And they've lost pretty much everything. Uh, they've lost about $42 million in funds from nearly 5,000 customers. They probably have no way to pay this back. They, As you mentioned, they're a 
they're a small startup. They they came through Y Combinator's uh, most recent um, accelerator, 2022 company. So, you know, they, they even sent out an update to customers where they could, uh, saying that they could withdraw all of their funds via ACH um, or bank wire. This is, this is available. And then when you get down into the details, it's like, but you can only withdraw them in UST. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, great. So I can take a 90% haircut on my initial investment. Wonderful. And even then I, I was looking through the Twitter thread and uh, people have not been able to withdraw their funds. So this team is going to face serious legal repercussions. It's already underway. And so they should. This is just like the, the worst kind of behavior. Uh, and I don't think this is going to be the last that we hear of this. So yeah, fun times in the uh, Terra ecosystem. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about this. It's been in pretty much every mainstream uh, regular news channel. It's been in the BBC over here in uh, London. It's been covered. Um, I was listening to the Economist podcast uh, this morning. They did a deep dive into Luna. It's in pretty much every major news outlet, and uh, it's not good. It's not great. And the, the final thing I'll also say is, you know, we're talking about all this happening in Korea. I remember listening to, and I, I can't remember it. Might have been um, Laura Shin's Unchained podcast episode with Do Kwon uh, a couple of months ago. He was talking about how he had really great relationships with the government in South Korea and they were very friendly to crypto. And that's why he'd had a base set up there. I, I wonder I wonder how that relationship's going right now. And I wonder how the South Korean government are going to have to respond to something like this. Uh, so yeah, we'll stay tuned for that, uh, for sure. All right, let's move on from Terra and we'll jump into our second story or third story maybe of the day. So we've all heard about how back in May of 2021, China banned crypto mining and trading and it would be the end of the world. Well, dum, it dum, turns dum. out, yeah, <laughs> turns out it wasn't the end of the world. Um, Bitcoin survived. But following that initial ban, there was some significant impact to China's global contribution to the Bitcoin mining network. Um, it was reduced to 0% in July and August of 2021. And that was down from like well over 50% prior to that date. So um, it did have a real impact. But in the months since, it looks like Bitcoin mining has appeared to have survived the ban in China. Um, so now uh, it, it's the latest data um, that's coming out of the, the CCAF's Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index, which is very wordy, but basically it's a public-private research initiative that's being hosted by the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. And they're pretty well known for this Bitcoin mining map that they've put together. We'll link it in the description. It's a really cool visual map that maps the mining activity around the world based on the geolocational data reported by partnering pools. So if you look at this, you can see that, yeah, back in July and August of 2021, when the, the ban was put into effect on mining and trading in China, um, it reduced their contribution to the Bitcoin mining network to about 0% from, as I said, well over 50%. And as a result, this plummeted the network hash rate to as low as 57 exahashes per second. But since then, like it recovered. Miners relocated um, and we were brought back to pre-ban levels by 
like as early as December of 2021. And then in February of this year, we actually set an all-time high of 248 exahashes per second. But what's interesting about this is that the latest data that's coming out of the Bitcoin mining map is showing that China's mining activity has actually somewhat rebounded and is fluctuating around 20, 21% as of the last several months. So what this does is this places them back to being second only to the US, which if I'm looking at the Bitcoin mining map right now is somewhere around 38% of the global Bitcoin hash rate. So what who, this suggests- Who would have thought, who would have thought that, uh, that, that Bitcoin miners would have found a way to skirt <laughs> regulation? It, it's, uh, it's mind blowing, isn't it? It's, it's really something else. And if you look into like what might have been happening here, it's a, a lot of what you would typically suspect. suspect. Um, there's underground mining activity happening in China. At first, it looks like a lot of the activity post-ban was moved offshore. Um, But then over time, it was kind of realized that you could continue to mine crypto and and Bitcoin um, on Chinese territory. You would just need to be a little creative about it. So it looks like there's usage of off-grid electricity. Um, There are now, instead of large-scale operations, there are small geographically scattered um, operations that are mining. And then also locations are being concealed through foreign proxy services. So it basically makes it look like the mining is coming from somewhere else. So nevertheless, um, the not only did the, the hash rate, of course, rebound and set an all-time high, but China is back in the game, it looks like. I, I think that we can look at this actually as a real net positive. I remember one of the episodes in our first series back in uh, 2017, 2018, we talked about kind of the, I think it was like the last episode we did in that series where we were talking about the challenges of Bitcoin ahead. And one of the things we noted at the time was, hey, look, like we talk about decentralization. And at that point, I think uh, China's mining dominance and the amount of hash rate they accounted for was like over 70%. And Bitmain's giant rise pre their IPO disaster uh, was was a big uh, contributor to that. Then this ban comes in, we see hash rate. What, what many people thought is, wow, China's like gonna uh, ban crypto mining and they're, they're no longer be able to do this. The Bitcoin network's gonna go down. Well, guess what? Uh, no, it just shifted all the way over to the US. Then we've seen this meteoric shift back. And actually, where we are now is a much more decentralized, much more decentralized split of, of mining. And I think especially with there being more smaller operations, this has to be a good thing for the network, um, at least answers some of the criticisms around that, which, which I think is a net positive. Yeah, I completely agree. If you go to the Bitcoin mining map um, website and scroll down a bit, there's this beautiful chart, which is just the evolution of network hash rate. And it's a visualization of exactly what you were talking about, Matt, where like you can see mainland China was absolutely dominating until the ban. And then the entire hash rate plummeted right after that. But then as it recovered, now what you can see is a very well diversified and decentralized, healthy looking graph. Now, as far as I understand, um, what we might need to do here to a certain degree is combine Kazakhstan with mainland China. And then the the chart maybe looks a little bit more like you've got two large players, which are effectively the US and China, because a lot of that mining activity 
uh, is reported to have moved offshore from China into Kazakhstan. And it's not totally clear like if it's actually there or if it's just a location proxy. Uh, but nevertheless, if you look at that chart, um, it looks much better <laughs> than it did yeah. pre-ban. Oh, for sure. Well, it's going to be interesting to track how this kind of uh, split of hash rate trends over the coming months. All right, let's jump into our next story of the day. One of the repercussions of the UST DPEG, and I'm sorry, we are having to talk about this again, uh, but this is a slightly different piece, is, I mentioned this earlier, any asset that is that has a peg to something, or at least is designed in some way where there is some form of peg, it's being tested. We saw Tether get tested, and uh, that uh, that would probably be the the most high stakes stablecoin to 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 truly lose its peg. And I think nobody nobody wants to open Pandora's box there. But one of the smaller pieces here, and this isn't a true pegged asset, but Lido, which is uh, I think should be, yeah, the biggest uh, liquid staking platform right now. They have staked ETH uh, among a number of other assets, but in particular, one of the, the big uh, one of the big things that you can do on Lido is stake your ETH and uh, they will give you somewhere between a three to five percent yield on that annually up until when the, um, the the new beacon chain goes live with with ETH. Now, Staked ETH is a, a token in itself, and it's largely pegged to the price of ETH. What we started to see as a ripple effect of the USTD peg was the curve pool um, was shook, and a discount of around about 5% was what staked ETH was being traded at. And you know what I will say is um, lots of people were kind of worried about this, worried that there was going to... Uh, be like a knock-on effect where there would be like a cascade of this peg dropping further and further. What I will say is Lido immediately pushed out an announcement for this. And it's worth calling out, this isn't a major issue in the short term in the same way as like UST and Luda uh, is. And I think there was a lot of misinformation around this. Um, It's actually pretty normal for staked ETH to trade a slight discount to ETH. Um, but this was larger than normal. 5% was pretty significant. It actually moved down to around about 2% after four hours. But if, if you are just staking your your ETH in Lido, largely there's, there's not really much to be worried about if there's a slight discount that this trades at for, for a little while. It's kind of natural. Um, the issue here was if anyone was using locked up their stake teeth or wrapped stake teeth as collateral on lending platforms like Aave or Oasis through MakerDAO. And they were already pretty close to their liquidation price. Well, this drop could have brought down the price to trigger some of those liquidations and people could have got liquidated. Now, what I will say on this thing is if you are within a 5% uh price swing in a massively volatile market of getting liquidated already, you are probably in already a very unhealthy state. Um, So the main risk here was around liquidations, and it doesn't seem like there was much damage here. I, I will actually call out and say that I think Lido did a very good job of managing this. Um, obviously very different from a depegging of a stable coin, but what they did to combat this very, very quickly ahead of sending out a, a great announcement to everyone 
they they actually deployed a second liquidity pool on Curve and allocated one million uh, LDO, their Lido tokens. That's their governance token for incentives just to uh, for people to add more staked ETH and ETH uh, liquidity pairs inside the Curve pool. Lido holders, uh, LDO token holders, are probably the ones that actually lost out through all of this because they just like printed a ton of tokens that would put downward price pressure on the LDO token. But I will say this is largely kind of, okay, I think the Lido team dealt with this really, really well, but it's just another example of a a knock-on effect of confidence, of of, uh, fear that's coming off the back of UST. Something worth calling out. We'll share some links to that in the show notes. All right, let's wrap up, Austin, with our with our final short story of the day. Exciting news coming out of Robinhood. They are planning to launch an Ethereum wallet with DeFi, NFT trading, and no user gas fees. This is pretty big. It's going to be a standalone, non-custodial wallet. So this is actually separate from their current offering of wallets that you may be familiar with. It's used by millions of people. Um, which those are custodial wallets, which means that they're managed on the back end by Robinhood. This is going to be completely separate, standalone, non-custodial wallet. What's interesting to me um, from the statements that the team at Robinhood have made over the course of the last week about this offering is that specifically user experience, usability, and what they're calling trading safety guardrails are going to be a focus with this product. So I think it could be an interesting alternative to MetaMask's pretty clunky UX, but also a competitor to the Coinbase wallet. Uh, Now, it's not totally clear how they're going to achieve those zero gas fees. So that's something I think to be watching out for. There's some speculation going around on how that might happen, but I haven't really seen any like speculation of a solution that would totally work or make sense. Uh, Nevertheless, they have a wait list, just like everybody else, uh, and the product is expected to launch by end of year. So, yeah, I, I think that f- for me, like, you know, a, a large sort of consumer stock focused company startup like Robinhood getting into the DeFi and uh, NFT space here is really interesting. It, it's interesting to see them enter Web3. I agree. I think it though, if you'd have said this was happening kind of this time next year to me, I'd have been a lot more optimistic. I think Robinhood as a whole is struggling and they're scrambling to kind of restore faith in uh, with shareholders and get the company on track. So I worry this might be somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction. However, I, I think overall this should be a net positive and yeah, we'll be we'll be paying close attention. Um so yeah, we'll 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 keep an eye on that one for sure. Um and over on on my side of the pond, we got we got stuff happening over in the the once or current at least crypto tax haven of of Portugal and how that might be uh, that might be ending for many of the 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 Web three users and uh, residents that are enjoying those breaks. Yeah, so you may have remembered last week I made a small remark that I, I felt that Portugal had been sort of struggling with its identity and approach to crypto, despite the fact that it has been. A crypto tax haven, it looks like that may be ending. So on Friday, Portugal's Minister of Finance announced that crypto would soon be subject to their capital gains tax, which is to say that it would be um, treated as a uh, not as as 
an exchange of money, which is what it has been treated as since 2008 and thus has created this tax haven, um, but that it would rather be treated as an investment. And currently, Portugal has a 28% capital gains tax. So this could be a significant change for what it means to hold crypto in Portugal. There are additional regulations uh, that are much, much more extreme than this that were tossed around actually in the um, the same session where the Minister of Finance spoke about this capital gains change. So I think that it's important right now, especially if you have holdings in crypto, in Portugal, um, in crypto, or we're planning to have holdings there to pay attention to the conversations that are happening in government. Yeah, because the party may be over for you all. Uh, it's making <laughs> the UK's uh, capital gains tax look uh, look good at this point. So, um, so yeah, I think we'll 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 be tracking that very very closely. Well, listen, Austin, we are well out of time, but we've covered a whole bunch today, and we will see you, of course next week when we round up all of the biggest stories in the wonderful world of Web3. Talk to you then, Matt. The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.